Good morning. As we continue walking through the book of Revelation, it's somewhat difficult to walk through because of what I'm reading and what's going to take place. Go back before the beginning of the 19th century, preaching was dominated by hellfire and brimstone. Didn't hear much about God's forgiveness or love. It was mostly hellfire and brimstone. Then around the beginning of the 19th century, coming into the 20th century, preaching started to change to where you heard mostly God's grace and his forgiveness, which is true. So I'm trying to paint a picture. Historically speaking, preaching went from one extreme to the other, and in the middle is where we need to be. Because God is a God of righteousness. He's a God of grace, a God of forgiveness, a God of mercy, but he's also a God of wrath and of judgment. And in fact, he tells us in his word that he is a jealous God. What ties those two together is his righteousness. He is bound by his very character that sin be dealt with. Now to sum it all down, I will say this before we get started. We all have a choice to make. Either we can deal with our own sin and deal with the consequences ourselves, or we can turn to Christ, the Messiah. Let him take care of the sin debt for us and make him both Lord and Savior of our lives. That's your choice to make. I can't make you do it. Your parents can't make you do it. Your friends can't make you do it. It's all on you. And by the way, God knows your heart. You're not going to tell him anything he doesn't already know. With that said, let's look at the text. The first four trumpets. Now the Lord commanded Moses to make two trumpets of silver, and you see that in the book of Numbers. Now, these trumpets are different from shofar, which is the ram's horn. For example, in Joshua chapter 6, verse 4, it states, Also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, talking about Jericho, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. Now, these trumpets of silver were used for many different purposes. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 10, verses 2, three, uh, excuse me, verses two through 10. Now, the trumpets are used in our passage this morning to herald the day of God's wrath. However, the trumpets are not final. It's not God's final act of judgment. They affect a significant proportion of the earth, but not all of it. The purpose is not so much retribution as it is to lead people to repentance. The reason he gave us this book is not a book of judgment and wrath. The reason he gave us this book to serve as a warning to lead us all to repentance before it is too late. Now with each trumpet, the intensity of judgment goes up. You go from trumpet one to trumpet two, the judgment goes up in intensity. But also, sadly, may I even say tragically, the intensity of people not wanting to repent even intensifies. They don't want to do it. And I read this earlier in this series, Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. Look what it says. 
the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and of brass and of stone and of wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk and they did not repent of their murders nor of their sorcerers nor of their immorality nor of their thefts imagine all this judgment being poured out but yet people still refuse to repent. I go back to that question I asked you just about four weeks ago. What will make you repent? Myself included. Where's that line at? Now, the thing about these trumpets, they replicate what we see happening in Egypt with the plagues of Egypt. Remember the plagues of Egypt? Each plague went up in intensity and each of those plagues attacked a god that the Egyptians had over that part of what the plague was attacking. And God was showing that he alone is sovereign. And that's the point of this text. God is demonstrating that he alone is sovereign over the universe, over creation. The first trumpet shows that the material world is not the answer. The second and third trumpet, the sea trade, including the food supplies that are found within the sea, and the fourth trumpet focuses on life itself, the heat and the light of celestial bodies. For example, what would happen to us if we lost a third of a sun for heat and light? Knowing what we know about photosynthesis and everything else we've gained knowledge upon, what would that do to planet Earth? It wouldn't be very good. But there's something to think about as we move along. Look at verse 3. Another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, or a large amount of it. Now, of course, this is different than the angels that you see receiving the trumpets back in verse 2. And he's given incense to offer. That's a sweet aroma in the presence of God. Just as the burning of frankincense and other incense are sweet to our nozzles when you smell it, so is the approach of God's creation to the Creator. God loves to hear the prayers of His people. It goes up as a sweet aroma to Him. He loves when you talk to Him. And He's always there. I have never prayed and got the message, beep, I'm away from the throne right now, but leaving. No, you don't get that at all. He invites us in, He wants us there. So much so, He made a way possible we could do that through the blood of Christ. Now, the altar of incense was critical to the function of the Holy of Holies. Remember, you had the, t- the temple or the tabernacle back in the Old Testament times. You had Outside, you had the courtyard. You had different altars. Inside, you had a holy place. had the showbread, the altar of incense. And then inside of that was a place called Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant sat, which represented God, the very presence of God. Now, the reason why it was important that altar was there is before the high priest once a year would go into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of the people. Before he did, he would throw some incense on that altar where the hot, hot coals are and make this pillar of smoke that represents the prayers of the people. So as he entered in, the prayers of the people protected him some degree until he could sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. See, the priest would go out to the altar of sacrifice and take hot coals and put it on that golden altar. 
And then they'd take the engine, they'd pull it on it, had a pillow of smoke, and he would enter in. That golden altar was in the holy place before you entered through the veil into the holy holies. Now what happened when Christ died? The veil was torn in two. Notice in the text, the golden altar is not outside the throne of God. It's right before the throne of God itself. Look back in verse 3. That tells me because of Christ, we're not outside trying to talk to God through a priest or anybody. We now have access to the very presence of God himself because of our one high priest, Christ, who shed his blood that covers our sins. Therefore, we can enter the presence of God. So when you pray... You're not, talking to a, you're not just talking to talk. You're entering into the very presence of God himself. And as the book of Hebrews tells us, we can have full confidence. We can go boldly, not with arrogance, but with confidence knowing that God indeed hears us. Which reminds me of our last cottage prayer when we talked about why is it that we pray for something? And we seek God for something. We pray and we pray. And then he answers the prayer. And then we're dumbfounded that he actually answers the prayer. We pray for a lady to get healed. She was in a horrific car crash at my first pastor. I mean, it was bad. And she was in ICU for weeks. They didn't think she was going to make it. And we prayed and we prayed. She made it through. And about a month later, she's sitting in church attending service. And all of us are going, well, I can't believe she's here. What do you mean we prayed for We should be praising God that God answered our prayer. How many of you been praying for rain? Oh, come on now. We need more rain at Bellevue, but guess what happened this past week? We got a good rain shower at Bellevue. And I heard my, yawn, my lawn say, ah, oh, not really. I'm just saying we need more, but thank God for what we received. And the reason why he, he got all this incense is look at verse 3. So he might add it to the prayers of the saints. What is a saint? A holy one? Who is a saint? Is that somebody who's reached another level of sanctity? How many people, you can say by amen, say it hardly, you're going to make nobody mad here, say it like you mean it, how many people are a follower of Christ who gave your life to Christ as Lord and Savior? Can I hear Amen. If you answer that with an amen, you are a holy one. You are a saint, not based on anything you have done or ever could do. It's based on the sacrifice of Christ and his blood that paid the penalty for your sins. That's a saint. And we talked about that last week, that, that silence, how it might have been given time for the, the, the prayers of the saints to be heard, but apparently... God is hearing them now. now prayer is the God-ordained conduit to challenge his sovereign power and response. And there's something sacrificial, <coughs> excuse me, about genuine prayer. Think about it. You're going into the very, the holy of holies, right before the throne of God, petitioning him to act on your behalf, or intercessory prayer, when you're praying on behalf of somebody else. Can I just say this in passing, we'll move on for time's sake. Be active in the political process. Vote. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. Be educated and vote. But the more powerful than that, pray 
for our government officials. Intercede on their behalf that God would give them the wisdom and the knowledge and the courage to do what is right. It says in verse 5 that he took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. Now that word translated through in Greek, it can mean different things depending on the context. In other words, if I had, now I never would do this for real, if I took this phone and I threw it at Daryl, or do I hurl it at Daryl? See the difference? So this could mean he hurled it or he threw it. Now apparently this is in direct response, it seems to be in direct response to the prayers of the martyrs. They went up with the incense and now God's answering. And you see there in verse 5, after he throws it to the earth, there followed peals of thunder, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is indication that God's about to answer their prayers. We're back in chapter 6. They want God to take vengeance. And it seems now God's about to intervene. We see the same thing happen at Mount Sinai. Remember the story? They go over there and Moses is about to go out and receive the Ten Commandments. And God descended upon that mountain. There was earthquake. There was flashes of lightning and thunder. Ooh. And so we got to get out of our 21st century American mind that God is like a grandfather on the side somewhere in a rocking chair, somewhat timid. No, he's an active, living God. In fact, if we were to see him, we'd probably pass out and die. He's a holy God. There's something real fearsome and terrible about our God because of who he is. As though the whole world is trembling before the presence of the Lord. And then we come to verse 7, the first trumpet, the first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And that same imagery can be found back in Exodus chapter 9, verses 22 through 26. Remember that one of the plagues, that hail came down from heaven, rained upon Egypt, it was, had fire. The combination of fire and blood heightens the devastation that it causes. Now, some scholars will tell you that word blood is referring to the red sky from which it falls. Some say, no, it's referring to what happens when it hits the ground. But every scholar that I've read does agree on this. This is not a natural occurrence. This is an act of God that's happening here. And look at the results. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees, all the green grass. Now, trees includes every tree, fruit trees. That was important to that region. Green grass should be taken to mean all vegetation. No, God's bringing judgment. Remember, this is not yet complete or final. Their purpose is, is to warn people to get them to repent. Now think on this. Think of all the wildfires that are burning right now as I speak to you. And all the forest fires that have happened. We've seen the results of those, haven't we? The ground is charred black, and all the vegetation is destroyed. Yet we look at this period called the Great Tribulation. Jesus says this is a time of tribulation that no one has ever seen, the words of Christ himself. That means that this fire that burns up the third of the planet will be like nothing else we have ever seen or experienced before. Think on that, the third of a planet completely burned up. 
I don't know what the square footage is. Me and Jerry had this conversation earlier. What the total square footage is of the earth or square miles, I have no idea. But we've seen how terrible fire can be. Now imagine that anticipated all around the world. Think about all the firefighters it takes to put out these fires. How many times those fires out in California, out west, even here in Texas, fire's been burning for two weeks and it's only 20% contained. Do you see what's happening here? You come to the second angel. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. That's in verse 8. You can find the same type of imagery in Exodus chapter 7, verses 20 and 21. Moses struck the, the Nile, and it turned into blood and the plagues. Now, some say you can find evidence for this sort of thing where there's been a volcanic eruption. And it's interesting to know that less than 20 years before the writing of this, Pompeii had been destroyed August 24th by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Perhaps you've heard of that in history class. Wiped out the entire city. And look at the result. Look at, look at verse 9. gives us the result of this. third of the creatures in the sea died. It says a third of the creatures that had life, they died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now think of the people who are dependent upon the ships to move goods and services around to receive. And let's not forget the food source that the sea provides, it's now gone. That would be devastating. Not only to the original readers who hear this, that was our mass transit operation back in the day. That's how they got around them all the times was using ships. And they had a lot, a lot of fish. But now that's gone. Think about an oil spill offshore. How it affects all the seaside economies. <coughs> We've had some spills down the Gulf of Mexico. And see what it does to a lot of our towns and cities on the coast. Think about when a hurricane slams into the coast and the ships are lost. Think how that damages shipping. And we still rely a lot on shipping. All those big cargo ships with those big cargo containers moving stuff around. <coughs> if a third of that was gone, what would that do to a lot of economies? But then we have the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven. Burning like a torch. Now, look at it very carefully. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. Now, some people say, well, maybe he's really describing what we know to be a nuclear missile. However, a body of water that becomes radioactive takes hundreds of years to reach to the point that it can save life again. The tribulation is limited to seven years, but if you go on to the biblical description of the kingdom period on earth, it has a lot of guard of eating features. Like the water of the salt sea shall be healed. You see that in Ezekiel chapter 47 verse 8. So here's the point. Reading contemporary situations back in the text is unnecessary and can be very troubling. And unnecessary. And risky. 
And notice that the star in verse 11 is called wormwood, after the strong bitter taste of a plant. It tells us the third of the rivers become bitter and people who drink it die. It's interesting to note that in the Old Testament, wormwood was used as a symbol of bitterness and sorrow. Proverbs chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. For the lips of adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Now in the Old Testament, wormwood is used in connection with the concept of God's judgment. Jeremiah 9.15 Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood, and give them poison water to drink. Now see, it also falls on the springs of water, so water was scarce in that part of the world. So springs, both natural and man-made, were essential. <coughs> Excuse me. Springs were viewed as a source of life. Metaphorically in Scripture, in several places, they're described as a fountain of life. For example, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 11 Proverbs chapter 13, verse 14, and Proverbs chapter 14, verse 27. And then we see them being described as the spring of living water. Jeremiah 2, 13, and Jeremiah 17, 13. Water is very important. Now, could you imagine the third of all the rivers and the lakes turning poisonous? All the scares of polluted water due to industrial waste in recent years... Remember Flint, Michigan? They're still having problems to this day. And how much damage that did? How many people got sick? Some died? All that pales in comparison to what's happening here when the third trumpet sounds. Now we're up to the fourth trumpet. It sounded. The fourth angel sounded. The third of the sun, moon, stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened. And you see that same imagery found in Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 23, when darkness fell upon Egypt. There's an interesting story in Joshua chapter 10, verse 7 and following, about the sun standing still. The sun and the moon both stopped until the Amorites were defeated. But as we talked before, there's a close relationship between the earth and the moon. We know this now. Astronomy. It'll moon controls the tides. And if I move too close or not enough, how about for light during the night? What would happen? It's really hard to imagine all the possibilities. What would happen? And a lot of what we know of astro- from astronomy and astrophysics. And even astrophysicists will tell you, they've been arguing for some time that the sun is really burning itself out. But be it as it may, darkness as a symbol of judgment runs throughout the Old Testament. For example, Amos chapter 5, verse 18. You are longing for the day of the Lord. For what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. In the New Testament, darkness is often connected with the demonic, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth that Jesus speaks about in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12. And we're told as believers we have been rescued from darkness, and that's Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. So darkness is 
not only a judgment, but also a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is happening. The third of the sun is not shining anymore. Well, it happened. Now, the plant life's already gone, but we need the sun. Because one thing that science has demonstrated to us yet again, although most of them won't agree there is a creator, how delicate this creation is and that everything relates to each other. It's not there by chance. God created a specific way to work a specific way. And when that gets out of order, things happen. See, he's demonstrating to us that he alone is creator. He alone is sustainer. We call it laws of nature. Who put that in motion? It was God. We want to talk about all these things that we have and we've done. Well, let me ask you this. Who gave you that health that woke you up this morning, that you have life, breathe air into your lungs? Who was it that gave you your mind that you could do jobs and have certain talents? It was God. There is nothing that we have not received that is good and just has not come from God's right hand. Period. So you have the first four trumpets. Just, just very briefly, I, w- I would like to uh, remind you that we still have five and six to go, and the first four just get this little end of a chapter, but five and six almost get a chapter by themselves. It talks about a bottomless pit. These creatures come out, have a Face like a man, a little crown. They have these stinger-like scorpions, like those scorpions sting you, but they won't kill you. They just torment you. People cry out for death, but will escape them. A little different Sunday school material than I heard as a kid. But I don't say this lightly or to scare you. I'm just reading the text as it's given to us. And I want to reemphasize again and again. You may be sick of me saying this. This is a warning. He's telling us up front what's going to happen. We haven't even scratched the surface yet. What's God's will? God's will for everyone to come to repentance and have everlasting life. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Why why do you think he hasn't come back yet now? He's still waiting. And let's not forget we have a, a mandate from him. That we go out and witness to people. That's why we exist as a church. To make disciples. Look at verse 13. It says, Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in the mid-heaven or the sky saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. Just imagine John seeing all this devastation happen before him. He's kind of transfixed on that. And all of a sudden he looks and he hears his eagle flying saying these things. Calling out with a loud voice with three woes. Interesting about that word is it can be translated either eagle or vulture, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek. Both are known for their size, strength, and speed. They're both birds of prey. But there's a reason why we favored translating an eagle here. Romans had an eagle in all their standards. They had viewed them as messengers of the gods. 
And the eagle here stands for grandeur, power, harbinger, and judgment. Kind of the majesty of God going on here, pronouncing the woes. And he's not saying, whoa, 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 about just happened with the four trumpet blasts. He's pronouncing woe three times for the two blasts about to come. And I want to encourage you to read ahead. Let's not forget, we got two more trumpets plus the, wrath, the bowls of wrath about to be poured out. And I want to say again, the reason for this is a call to repentance. The more people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ before it's too late. See, the first four trumpets alone prove that those who put their lives or only live their lives for this world have chosen foolishly, for only in God is their true life. The earthly things, we can't depend upon them. Why would we? We can, between two fates, we can pick from. Either we can be saved, hence the word we use all the time, are you saved? Trust in Christ, that he paid our sin, that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. By the way, when you come to him as a Savior, you also come to him as Lord. There's no splitting those two. If he's Savior, is also Lord. What does that mean? Lord means he's calling the shots for your life now. From the most simplest things to the biggest change. Where do you go to school? What do you do for a living? Who you marry? How do you raise your kids? Where do you spend your money? Where do you spend your time? That all comes under this, his lordship. The judgment has occurred at this point, but it's not complete or final. last chance to respond to respond to the call of repentance but it also serves as a word of doom for those who refuse to believe I don't know your heart I couldn't handle that type of information to tell you the truth where's your heart at have you given your life to Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. These things are going to happen. You know how the Old Testament, we read about all the Messianic prophecies, and we wonder why didn't the people of Israel see it? They had all these promises and all these prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Why didn't they see it? It occurred to you, we're sitting in the same time of history, so we're reading all these things about to happen in the book of Revelation, and people may look on us and say, why didn't they get it? Why didn't they see it? How's your life going? Is he also Lord of your life? Any unconfessed sin in your life? You need to make some healing at relationships. Perhaps loved ones, friends, even strangers. You know, the Bible says before you even give your tithe, that you have something against your brother or sister, you better go take care of that first before you attempt to give anything to God because God will reject it. I know this is a difficult passage. It doesn't get much prettier from here on in. God is a God of love, mercy, and forgiveness, but he's also a God of wrath. I'm going to say this in conclusion. 
God, in his mercy, has done everything he possibly can to make a way for you to escape all of this. That's through his son. You, you have that choice. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to do You receive it as a gift. The greatest gift ever given to everyone of this world has a chance. But to, to get a gift, well, you have to receive it, right? He does not force himself on anybody. You have to come of your own will and your own accord and have to bow that knee. But make no mistake about it. Either you can willingly do that now in submission to him. And let me tell you, he's a great God to serve. And your life will never be the same. Either you can do that now with your own will, your own submission, or you'll do it then. But then that will be too late. Imagine spending all of eternity thinking, why didn't I, why didn't I, that you knew the truth, but you did not respond. God is making his truth known to this entire world. Well, let's not talk about the rest of the world. Let's, let's end on this one, shall we? Everybody in this room, I don't, sa- I don't want to sound like a, a holier-than-thou or I'm above you. It's not what I mean by this. Simply put, you've been warned. You know the truth. And what you do with that is up to you. My job is to tell you the truth, unedited. Not my opinion, what it says. To do it accurately and the best I can. Now what's up to you? What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with that information? Are you going to respond or not? And this invitation is not for people just to come to receive Christ. This invitation is for you to come and join the church. This is an invitation for you to come and say, I want to be involved in the ministry of the church. This is an invitation to come with your spouse or your, your kids, whoever, or maybe with a friend, go across the room and say, let's go pray together, whatever it is. It's an invitation to respond to God's word. With that said, please, I beg of you, I implore you, Please do not leave and walk away. Talk to him. Please, before it's everlasting, too late to do so. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We, we thank you that indeed you've told us what is to come. And Father, that is the bad news. But the good news is that you've already taken care of all this. You sent your Son, the perfect sacrifice, to pay our sin debt. That we don't have to bear our sin. It could be nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Father, I pray that you give us courage and boldness to step out and to trust you. You have proven yourself trustworthy and faithful time and time and time and time again. Father, I know there's people hurting in this room right now. I 
I pray that they feel your arms of love, mercy, forgiveness. That you pull them close to your side. Father, you promised that your word would not return to you void. Do as you will. May your will be done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? Thank you.